Chapter 1, Part C of The Wealth of Nations, Book 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book 5, Chapter 1, Part C of the Expenses of the Sovereign or Commonwealth. Part 3 of the expense of public works and public institutions. The third and last duty of the sovereign or commonwealth is that of erecting and maintaining those public institutions and those public works, which, though they may be in the highest degree advantageous to a great society, are, however, of such a nature that the profit could never repay the expense to any individual or small number of individuals and which it therefore cannot be expected that any individual or small number of individuals should erect or maintain the performance of this duty requires too very different degrees of expense in the different periods of society after the public institutions and public works necessary for the defence of the society and for the administration of justice both of which have already been mentioned the other works and institutions of this kind are chiefly for facilitating the commerce of the society, and those for promoting the instruction of the people. The institutions for instruction are of two kinds, those for the education of the youth, and those for the instruction of people of all ages. The consideration of the manner in which the expense of those different sorts of public works and institutions may be most properly defrayed will divide this third part of the present chapter into three different articles. Article 1. Of the Public Works and Institutions for Facilitating the Commerce of the Society. And first, of those which are necessary for facilitating commerce in general that the erection and the maintenance of the public works which facilitate the commerce of any country such as good roads bridges navigable canals harbours etc must require very different degrees of expense in the different periods of society is evident without any proof the expense of making and maintaining the public roads of any country must evidently increase with the annual produce of the land and labour of that country or with the quantity and weight of the goods which it becomes necessary to fetch and carry upon those roads. The strength of a bridge must be suited to the number and weight of the carriages which are likely to pass over it. The depth and the supply of water for a navigable canal must be proportioned to the number and tonnage of the lighters which are likely to carry goods upon it, the extent of a harbour to the number of the shipping which are likely to take shelter in it. It does not seem necessary that the expense of those public works should be defrayed from that public revenue, as it is commonly called, of which the collection and application are, in most countries, assigned to the executive power. The greater part of such public works may easily be so managed as to afford a particular revenue, sufficient for defraying their own expense without bringing any burden upon the general revenue of the society. A highway, a bridge, a navigable canal, for example, may in most cases be both made and maintained by a small toll upon the carriages which make use of them, a harbour by a moderate port duty upon the tonnage of the shipping which load or unload in it. The coinage, another institution for facilitating commerce, in many countries not only defrays its own expense, but affords a small revenue or a seigniorage to the sovereign. The post office, another institution for the same purpose, over and above defraying its own expense, affords, in almost all countries, a very considerable revenue to the sovereign. 
when the carriages which pass over a highway or a bridge and the lighters which sail upon a navigable canal pay toll in proportion to their weight or their tonnage they pay for the maintenance of those public works exactly in proportion to the wear and tear which they occasion of them it seems scarce possible to invent a more equitable way of maintaining such works this tax or toll too though it is advanced by the carrier is finally paid by the consumer to whom it must always be charged in the price of the goods as the expense of carriage however is very much reduced by means of such public works the goods notwithstanding the toll come cheaper to the consumer than they could otherwise have done their price not being so much raised by the toll as it is lowered by the cheapness of the carriage the person who finally pays this tax therefore gains by the application more than he loses by the payment of it his payment is exactly in proportion to his gain it is in reality no more than a part of that gain which he is obliged to give up in order to get the rest it seems impossible to imagine a more equitable method of raising a tax when the toll upon carriages of luxury upon coaches post-chaises etc is made somewhat higher in proportion to their weight than upon carriages of necessary use such as carts wagons etc the indolence and vanity of the rich is made to contribute in a very easy manner to the relief of the poor by rendering cheaper the transportation of heavy goods to all the different parts of the country when high roads bridges canals etc are in this manner made and supported by the commerce which is carried on by means of them they can be made only where that commerce requires them and consequently where it is proper to make them their expense too their grandeur and magnificence must be suited to what that commerce can afford to pay they must be made consequently as it is proper to make them a magnificent high road cannot be made through a desert country where there is little or no commerce or merely because it happens to lead to the country villa of the intendant of the province or to that of some great lord to whom the intendant finds it convenient to make his court a great bridge cannot be thrown over a river at a place where nobody passes or merely to embellish the view from the windows of a neighboring palace things which sometimes happen in countries where works of this kind are carried on by any other revenue than that which they themselves are capable of affording in several different parts of europe the toll or lock duty upon a canal is the property of private persons whose private interest obliges them to keep up the canal if it is not kept in tolerable order the navigation necessarily ceases altogether and along with it the whole profit which they can make by the tolls if those tolls were put under the management of commissioners who had themselves no interest in them they might be less attentive to the maintenance of the works which produce them the canal of Languedoc cost the king of france and the province upwards of thirteen millions of livres which at twenty-eight livres the mark of silver the value of french money in the end of the last century amounted to upwards of nine hundred thousand pounds sterling when that great work was finished the most likely method it was found of keeping it in constant repair was to make a present of the tolls to riquet the engineer who planned and conducted the work these tolls constitute at present a very large estate to the different branches of the family of that gentleman who have therefore a great interest to keep the work in constant repair but had those tolls been put under the management of the commissioners who had no such interest they might perhaps have been dissipated in ornamental and unnecessary expenses while the most essential parts of the works were allowed to go to ruin the tolls for the maintenance of a high road cannot with any safety be made the property of private persons 
a high road though entirely neglected does not become altogether impassable though a canal does the proprietors of the tolls upon a high road therefore might neglect altogether the repair of the road and yet continue to levy very nearly the same tolls it is proper therefore that the tolls for the maintenance of such a work should be put under the management of commissioners or trustees in great britain the abuses which the trustees have committed in the management of these tolls have in many cases been very justly complained of at many turnpikes it has been said the money levied is more than double of what is necessary for executing in the completest manner the work which is often executed in a very slovenly manner and sometimes not executed at all the system of repairing the high roads by tolls of this kind it must be observed is not of very long standing we should not wonder therefore if it has not yet been brought to that degree of perfection of which it seems capable if mean and improper persons are frequently appointed trustees and if proper courts of inspection and account have not yet been established for controlling their conduct and for reducing the tolls to what is barely sufficient for executing the work to be done by them the recency of the institution both accounts and apologizes for those defects of which by the wisdom of parliament the greater part may in due time be gradually remedied the money levied at the different turnpikes in great britain is supposed to exceed so much what is necessary for repairing the roads that the savings which with proper economy might be made from it have been considered even by some ministers as a very great resource which might at some time or another be applied to the exigencies of the state government it has been said by taking the management of the turnpikes into its own hands and by employing the soldiers who would work for a very small addition to their pay could keep the roads in good order at a much less expense than it can be done by trustees who have no other workmen to employ but such as derive their whole subsistence from their wages a great revenue half a million perhaps it has been pretended might in this manner be gained without laying any new burden upon the people and the turnpike roads might be made to contribute to the general expense of the state in the same manner as the post office does at present that a considerable revenue might be gained in this manner i have no doubt though probably not near so much as the projectors of this plan have supposed the plan itself however seems liable to several very important objections first if the tolls which are levied at the turnpikes should ever be considered as one of the resources for supplying the exigencies of the state they would certainly be augmented as those exigencies were supposed to require according to the policy of great britain therefore they would probably be augmented very fast the facility with which a great revenue could be drawn from them would probably encourage administration to recur very frequently to this resource though it may perhaps be more than doubtful whether half a million could by any economy be saved out of the present tolls it can scarcely be doubted but that a million might be saved out of them if they were doubled and perhaps two millions if they were tripled this great revenue too might be levied without the appointment of a single new officer to collect and receive it but the turnpike tolls being continually augmented in this manner instead of facilitating the inland commerce of the country as at present would soon become a very great encumbrance upon it the expense of transporting all heavy goods from one part of the country to another would soon be so much increased the market for all such goods consequently would soon be so much narrowed that their production would be in a great measure discouraged and the most important branches of the domestic industry of the country annihilated altogether secondly 
a tax upon carriages in proportion to their weight though a very equal tax when applied to the sole purpose of repairing the roads is a very unequal one when applied to any other purpose or to supply the common exigencies of the state when it is applied to the sole purpose above mentioned each carriage is supposed to pay exactly for the wear and tear which that carriage occasions of the roads but when it is applied to any other purpose each carriage is supposed to pay for more than that wear and tear and contributes to the supply of some other exigency of the state but as the turnpike toll raises the price of goods in proportion to their weight and not their value it is chiefly paid by the consumers of coarse and bulky not by those of precious and light commodities whatever exigency of the state therefore this tax might be intended to supply that exigency would be chiefly supplied at the expense of the poor not of the rich at the expense of those who are least able to supply it not of those who are most able thirdly if government should at any time neglect the reparation of the high roads it would be still more difficult than it is at present to compel the proper application of any part of the turnpike tolls a large revenue might thus be levied upon the people without any part of it being applied to the only purpose to which a revenue levied in this manner ought ever to be applied if the meanness and poverty of the trustees of turnpike roads render it sometimes difficult at present to oblige them to repair their wrong their wealth and greatness would render it ten times more so in the case which is here supposed in france the funds destined for the reparation of the high roads are under the immediate direction of the executive power those funds consist partly in a certain number of days labour which the country people are in most parts of europe obliged to give to the reparation of the highways and partly in such a portion of the general revenue of the state as the king chooses to spare from his other expenses by the ancient law of france as well as by that of most other parts of europe the labour of the country people was under the direction of a local or provincial magistracy which had no immediate dependency upon the king's council but by the present practice both the labour of the country people and whatever other fund the king may choose to assign for the reparation of the high roads in any particular province or generality are entirely under the management of the intendant an officer who is appointed and removed by the king's council who receives his orders from it and is in constant correspondence with it in the progress of despotism the authority of the executive power gradually absorbs that of every other power in the state and assumes to itself the management of every branch of revenue which is destined for any public purpose in france however the great post roads the roads which make the communication between the principal towns of the kingdom are in general kept in good order and in some provinces are even a good deal superior to the greater part of the turnpike roads of england but what we call the cross-roads that is the far greater part of the roads in the country are entirely neglected and are in many places absolutely impassable for any heavy carriage in some places it is even dangerous to travel on horseback and mules are the only conveyance which can be safely trusted the proud minister of an ostentatious court may frequently take pleasure in executing a work of splendor and magnificence such as a great highway which is frequently seen by the principal nobility whose applauses not only flatter his vanity but even contribute to support his interest at court but to execute a great number of little works in which nothing that can be done can make any great appearance or excite the smallest degree of admiration in any traveller and which in short have nothing to recommend them but their extreme utility 
is a business which appears in every respect too mean and paltry to merit the attention of so great a magistrate under such an administration therefore such works are almost always entirely neglected in china and in several other governments of asia the executive power charges itself both with the reparation of the high roads and with the maintenance of the navigable canals in the instructions which are given to the governor of each province those objects it is said are constantly recommended to him and the judgment which the court forms of his conduct is very much regulated by the attention which he appears to have paid to this part of his instructions this branch of public police accordingly is said to be very much attended to in all those countries but particularly in china where the high roads and still more the navigable canals it is pretended exceed very much everything of the same kind which is known in europe the accounts of those works however which have been transmitted to europe have generally been drawn up by weak and wandering travellers frequently by stupid and lying missionaries if they had been examined by more intelligent eyes and if the accounts of them had been reported by more faithful witnesses they would not perhaps appear to be so wonderful the account which bernier gives of some works of his kind in indostan falls very short of what had been reported of them by other travellers more disposed to the marvellous than he was it may too perhaps be in those countries as it is in france where the great roads the great communications which are likely to be the subjects of conversation at the court and in the capital are attended to and all the rest neglected in china besides in indostan and in several other governments of asia the revenue of the sovereign arises almost altogether from a land tax or land rent which rises or falls with the rise and fall of the annual produce of the land the great interest of the sovereign therefore his revenue is in such countries necessarily and immediately connected with the cultivation of the land with the greatness of its produce and with the value of its produce but in order to render that produce both as great and as valuable as possible it is necessary to procure to it as extensive a market as possible and consequently to establish the freest the easiest and the least expensive communication between all the different parts of the country which can be done only by means of the best roads and the best navigable canals but the revenue of the sovereign does not in any part of europe arise chiefly from a land tax or land rent in all the great kingdoms of europe perhaps the greater part of it may ultimately depend upon the produce of the land but that dependency is neither so immediate nor so evident in europe therefore the sovereign does not feel himself so directly called upon to promote the increase both in quantity and value of the produce of the land or by maintaining good roads and canals to provide the most extensive market for that produce though it should be true therefore what i apprehend is not a little doubtful that in some parts of asia this department of the public police is very properly managed by the executive power there is not the least probability that during the present state of things it could be tolerably managed by that power in any part of europe even those public works which are of such a nature that they cannot afford any revenue for maintaining themselves but of which the conveniency is nearly confined to some particular place or district are always better maintained by a local or provincial revenue under the management of a local and provincial administration than by the general revenue of the state of which the executive power must always have the management were the streets of london to be lighted and paved at the expense of the treasury is there any probability that they would be so well lighted and paved as they are at present or even at so small an expense 
the expense besides instead of being raised by a local tax upon the inhabitants of each particular street parish or district in london would in this case be defrayed out of the general revenue of the state and would consequently be raised by a tax upon all the inhabitants of the kingdom of whom the greater part derive no sort of benefit from the lighting and paving of the streets of london the abuses which sometimes creep into the local and provincial administration of a local and provincial revenue how enormous soever they may appear are in reality however almost always very trifling in comparison of those which commonly take place in the administration and expenditure of the revenue of a great empire they are besides much more easily corrected under the local or provincial administration of the justices of the peace in great britain the six days labour which the country people are obliged to give to the reparation of the highways is not always perhaps very judiciously applied but it is scarce ever exacted with any circumstance of cruelty or oppression in france under the administration of the attendants the application is not always more judicious and the exaction is frequently the most cruel and oppressive such corvées as they are called make one of the principal instruments of tyranny by which those officers chastise any parish or communote which has had the misfortune to fall under their displeasure of the public works and institution which are necessary for facilitating particular branches of commerce the object of the public works and institutions above mentioned is to facilitate commerce in general but in order to facilitate some particular branches of it particular institutions are necessary which again require a particular and extraordinary expense some particular branches of commerce which are carried on with barbarous and uncivilized nations require extraordinary protection an ordinary store or counting-house could give little security to the goods of the merchants who trade to the western coast of africa to defend them from the barbarous natives it is necessary that the place where they are deposited should be in some measure fortified the disorders in the government of Indostan have been supposed to render a like precaution necessary even among that mild and gentle people and it was under pretence of securing their persons and property from violence that both the english and french east india companies were allowed to erect the first forts which they possessed in that country among other nations whose vigorous government will suffer no strangers to possess any fortified place within their territory it may be necessary to maintain some ambassador minister or consul who may both decide according to their own customs the differences arising among his countrymen and in their disputes with the natives may by means of his public character interfere with more authority and afford them a more powerful protection than they could expect from any private man the interests of commerce have frequently made it necessary to maintain ministers in foreign countries where the purposes either of war or alliance would not have required any the commerce of the turkey company first occasioned the establishment of an ordinary ambassador at constantinople the first english embassies to russia arose altogether from commercial interests the constant interference with those interests necessarily occasioned between the subjects of the different states of europe has probably introduced the custom of keeping in all neighboring countries ambassadors or ministers constantly resident even in the time of peace this custom unknown to ancient times seems not to be older than the end of the fifteenth or beginning of the sixteenth century that is than the time when commerce first began to extend itself to the greater part of the nations of europe and when they first began to attend to its interests 
It seems not unreasonable that the extraordinary expense which the protection of any particular branch of commerce may occasion should be defrayed by a moderate tax upon that particular branch, by a moderate fine, for example, to be paid by the traders when they first enter into it, or, what is more equal, by a particular duty of so much per cent upon the goods which they either import into or export out of the particular countries with which it is carried on. The protection of trade, in general, from privates and freebooters, is said to have given occasion to the first institution of the duties of customs. But, if it was thought reasonable to lay a general tax upon trade, in order to defray the expense of protecting trade in general, it should seem equally reasonable to lay a particular tax upon a particular branch of trade, in order to defray the extraordinary expense of protecting that branch. The protection of trade, in general, has always been considered as essential to the defense of the commonwealth, and, upon that account, a necessary part of the duty of the executive power. The collection and application of the general duties of customs, therefore, have always been left to that power. But the protection of any particular branch of trade is a part of the general protection of trade a part therefore of the duty of that power and if nations always acted consistently the particular duties levied for the purposes of such particular protection should always have been left equally to its disposal but in this respect as well as in many others nations have not always acted consistently and in the greater part of the commercial states of europe particular companies of merchants have had the address to persuade the legislature to entrust to them the performance of this part of the duty of the sovereign together with all the powers which are necessarily connected with it these companies though they may perhaps have been useful for the first introduction of some branches of commerce by making at their own expense an experiment which the state might not think it prudent to make have in the long run proved universally either burdensome or useless and have either mismanaged or confined the trade when those companies do not trade upon a joint stock but are obliged to admit any person properly qualified upon paying a certain fine and agreeing to submit to the regulations of the company each member trading upon his own stock and at his own risk they are called regulated companies when they trade upon a joint stock each member sharing in the common profit or loss in proportion to his share in this stock they are called joint stock companies such companies whether regulated or joint stock sometimes have and sometimes have not exclusive privileges Regulated companies resemble, in every respect, the corporation of trades, so common in the cities and towns of all the different countries of Europe, and are a sort of enlarged monopolies of the same kind. As no inhabitant of a town can exercise an incorporated trade without first obtaining his freedom in the incorporation, so in most cases no subject of the state can lawfully carry on any branch of foreign trade for which a regulated company is established without first becoming a member of that company the monopoly is more or less strict according as the terms of admission are more or less difficult and according as the directors of the company have more or less authority or have it more or less in their power to manage in such a manner as to confine the greater part of the trade to themselves and their particular friends in the most ancient regulated companies the privileges of apprenticeship were the same as in other corporations and entitled the person who had served his time to a member of the company to become himself a member either without paying any fine or upon paying a much smaller one than what was exacted of other people the usual corporation spirit 
wherever the law does not restrain it, prevails in all regulated companies. When they have been allowed to act according to their natural genius, in order to confine the competition to as small a number of persons as possible, endeavored to subject the trade to many burdensome regulations. When the law has restrained them from doing this, they have become altogether useless and insignificant. The regulated companies for foreign commerce, which at present subsist in Great Britain, are the Ancient Merchant Adventurers Company, now commonly called the Hamburg Company, the Russia Company, the Eastland Company, the Turkey Company, and the African Company. The terms of admission into the Hamburg Company are now said to be quite easy, and the directors either have it not in their power to subject the trade to any troublesome restraint or regulations, or, at least, have not of late exercised that power. It has not always been so. About the middle of the last century, the fine for admission was fifty, and at one time one hundred pounds, and the conduct of the company was said to be extremely oppressive. In 1643, in 1645, and in 1661, the clothiers and free traders of the west of England complained of them to Parliament, as of monopolists, who confined the trade and oppressed the manufacturers of the country. Though those complaints produced no act of Parliament, they had probably intimidated the company so far as to oblige them to reform their conduct. Since that time, at least, there have been no complaints against them. By the 10th and 11th of William III, C6, the fine for admission into the Russia Company was reduced to five pounds, and by the 25th of Charles II, C7, that for admission into the Eastland Company to forty shillings, while at the same time Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, all the countries on the north side of the Baltic, were exempted from their exclusive charter. The conduct of those companies had probably given occasion to those two acts of Parliament. Before that time, Sir Josiah Child had represented both these and the Hamburg Company as extremely oppressive, and imputed to their bad management the low state of the trade, which we at that time carried on to the countries comprehended within their respective charters. But though such companies may not, in the present times, be very oppressive, they are certainly altogether useless. To be merely useless, indeed, is perhaps the highest eulogy which can ever justly be bestowed upon a regulated company, and all the three companies above mentioned seem, in their present state, to deserve this eulogy. The fine for admission into the Turkey Company was formerly twenty-five pounds for all persons under twenty-six years of age, and fifty pounds for all persons above that age. Nobody but mere merchants could be admitted, a restriction which excluded all shopkeepers and retailers. By a by-law, no British manufacturers could be exported to Turkey but in the general ships of the company and as those ships sailed always from the port of london this restriction confined the trade to that expensive port and the traders to those who lived in london and its neighbourhood by another by law no person living within twenty miles of london and not free of the city could be admitted a member another restriction which joined to the foregoing necessarily excluded all but the free men of london as the time for the loading and sailing of those general ships depended altogether upon the directors, they could easily fill them with their own goods and those of their particular friends to the exclusion of others, who, they might pretend, had made their proposals too late. In this state of things, therefore, this company was, in every respect, a strict and oppressive monopoly. 
Those abuses gave occasion to the act of the 26th of George II, C-18, reducing the fine for admission to twenty pounds for all persons, without any distinction of ages or any restriction, either to mere merchants or to the free men of London, and granting to all such persons the liberty of exporting, from all the ports of Great Britain, to any port in Turkey, all British goods, of which the exportation was not prohibited, upon paying both the general duties of customs and the particular duties assessed for defraying the necessary expenses of the company, and submitting, at the same time, to the lawful authority of the British ambassador and consuls resident in Turkey, and to the bylaws of the company duly enacted. To prevent any oppression by those bylaws, it was by the same act ordained that if any seven members of the company conceived themselves aggrieved by any bylaw which should be enacted after the passing of this act, they might appeal to the Board of Trade and Plantations, to the authority of which a committee of the Privy Council has now succeeded, provided such appeal was brought within twelve months after the bylaw was enacted and that if any seven members conceived themselves aggrieved by any by-law which had been enacted before the passing of this act they might bring a like appeal provided it was within twelve months after the day on which this act was to take place the experience of one year however may not always be sufficient to discover to all the members of a great company the pernicious tendency of a particular by-law and if several of them should afterwards discover it neither the board of trade nor the committee of council can afford them any redress. The object, besides, of the greater part of the bylaws of all regulated companies, as well as of all other corporations, is not so much to oppress those who are already members, as to discourage others from becoming so, which may be done not only by a high fine, but by many other contrivances. The constant view of such companies is always to raise the rate of their own profit as high as they can, to keep the market, both for the goods which they export and for those which they import, as much understocked as they can, which can be done only by restraining the competition or by discouraging new adventurers from entering into the trade. A fine, even of twenty pounds, besides, though it may not, perhaps, be sufficient to discourage any man from entering into the turkey trade with an intention to continue in it, may be enough to discourage a speculative merchant from hazarding a single adventure in it, in all trades the regular established traders even though not incorporated naturally combine to raise profits which are no way so likely to be kept at all times down to their proper level as by the occasional competition of speculative adventurers the turkey trade though in some measure laid open by this act of parliament is still considered by many people as very far from being altogether free the Turkey Company contribute to maintain an ambassador and two or three consuls, who, like other public ministers, ought to be maintained altogether by the state, and the trade laid open to all his majesty's subjects. The different taxes levied by the company, for this and other corporation purposes, might afford a revenue much more than sufficient to enable a state to maintain such ministers. Regulated companies, it was observed by Sir Josiah Child, though they had frequently supported public ministers, had never maintained any forts or garrisons in the countries to which they traded, whereas joint stock companies frequently had, and in reality the former seemed to be much more unfit for this sort of service than the latter. First, the directors of a regulated company have no particular interest in the prosperity of the general trade of the company for the sake of which such forts and garrisons are maintained. 
the decay of that general trade may even frequently contribute to the advantage of their own private trade as by diminishing the number of their competitors it may enable them both to buy cheaper and to sell dearer the directors of a joint stock company on the contrary having only their share in the profits which are made upon the common stock committed to their management have no private trade of their own of which the interest can be separated from that of the general trade of the company their private interest is connected with the prosperity of the general trade of the company and with the maintenance of the forts and garrisons which are necessary for its defence they are more likely therefore to have that continual and careful attention which that maintenance necessarily requires secondly the directors of a joint stock company have always the management of a large capital the joint stock of the company a part of which they may frequently employ with propriety in building repairing and maintaining such necessary forts and garrisons but the directors of a regulated company having the management of no common capital have no other fund to employ in this way but the casual revenue arising from the admission fines and from the corporation duties imposed upon the trade of the company though they have the same interest therefore to attend to the maintenance of such forts and garrisons they can seldom have the same ability to render that attention effectual the maintenance of a public minister requiring scarce any attention and but a moderate and limited expense is a business much more suitable both to the temper and abilities of a regulated company long after the time of sir josiah child however in seventeen fifty a regulated company was established the present company of merchants trading to africa which was expressly charged at first with the maintenance of all the British forts and garrisons that lie between Cape Blanc and the Cape of Good Hope, and afterwards with that of those only which lie between Cape Rouge and the Cape of Good Hope. The act which establishes this company, the 23rd of George the Second, C51, seems to have had two distinct objects in view. First, to restrain effectually the oppressive and monopolizing spirit which is natural to the directors of a regulated company, and, secondly, to force them, as much as possible, to give an attention which is not natural to them, towards the maintenance of forts and garrisons. For the first of these purposes, the fine for admission is limited to forty shillings. The company is prohibited from trading in their corporate capacity, or upon a joint stock from borrowing money upon common seal or from laying any restraints upon the trade which may be carried on freely from all places and by all persons being british subjects and paying the fine the government is in a committee of nine persons who meet at london but who are chosen annually by the free men of the company at london bristol and liverpool three from each place no committeeman can be continued in office for more than three years together any committeeman might be removed by the board of trade and plantations now by a committee of council after being heard in his own defence the committee are forbid to export negroes from africa or to import any african goods into great britain but as they are charged with the maintenance of forts and garrisons they may for that purpose export from great britain to africa goods and stores of different kinds out of the monies which they shall receive from the company they are allowed a sum not exceeding eight hundred pounds for the salaries of their clerks and agents at london bristol and liverpool the house rent of their offices at london and all other expenses of management commission and agency in england what remains of this sum after defraying these different expenses they may divide among themselves as compensation for their trouble in what manner they think proper 
by this constitution it might have been expected that the spirit of monopoly would have been effectually restrained and the first of these purposes sufficiently answered it would seem however that it had not though by the fourth of george the third c twenty the fort of senegal with all its dependencies had been invested in the company of merchants trading to africa yet in the year following by the fifth of george the third c forty four not only senegal and its dependencies but the whole coast from the port of sali in south barbary to cape rouge was exempted from the jurisdiction of that company was vested in the crown and the trade to it declared free to all his majesty's subjects the company had been suspected of restraining the trade and of establishing some sort of improper monopoly it is not however very easy to conceive how under the regulations of the twenty-third of george the second they could do so in the printed debates of the house of commons not always the most authentic records of truth i observe however that they have been accused of this the members of the committee of nine being all merchants and the governors and factors in their different forts and settlements being all dependent upon them it is not unlikely that the latter might have given peculiar attention to the consignments and commissions of the former which would establish a real monopoly for the second of these purposes the maintenance of the forts and garrisons an annual sum has been allotted to them by parliament generally about thirteen thousand pounds for the proper application of this sum the committee is obliged to account annually to the cursitor baron of exchequer which account is afterwards to be laid before parliament but parliament which gives so little attention to the application of millions is not likely to give much to that of thirteen thousand pounds a year and the cursitor baron of exchequer from his profession and education is not likely to be profoundly skilled in the proper expense of forts and garrisons the captains of his majesty's navy indeed or any other commissioned officers appointed by the board of admiralty may inquire into the condition of the forts and garrisons and report their observations to that board but that board seems to have no direct jurisdiction over the committee nor any authority to correct those whose conduct it may thus inquire into and the captains of his majesty's navy besides are not supposed to be always deeply learned in the science of fortification removal from an office which can be enjoyed only for the term of three years and of which the lawful emoluments even during that term are so very small seems to be the utmost punishment to which any committeeman is liable for any fault except direct malversation or embezzlement either of the public money or of that of the company and the fear of the punishment can never be a motive of sufficient weight to force a continual and careful attention to a business to which he has no other interest to attend the committee are accused of having sent out bricks and stones from england for the reparation of cape coast castle on the coast of guinea a business for which parliament had several times granted an extraordinary sum of money these bricks and stones too which had thus been sent upon so long a voyage were said to have been of so bad a quality that it was necessary to rebuild from the foundation the walls which had been repaired with them the forts and garrisons which lie north of cape rouge are not only maintained at the expense of the state but are under the immediate government of the executive power and why those which lie south of that cape and which too are in part at least maintained at the expense of the state should be under a different government it seems not very easy even to imagine a good reason the protection of the mediterranean trade was the original purpose or pretense of the garrisons of gibraltar and Menorca 
and the maintenance and government of those garrisons have always been very properly committed not to the turkey company but to the executive power in the extent of its dominion consists in a great measure the pride and dignity of that power and it is not very likely to fail in attention to what is necessary for the defence of that dominion the garrisons at gibraltar and minorca accordingly have never been neglected though minorca has been twice taken and is now probably lost forever that disaster has never been imputed to any neglect in the executive power i would not however be understood to insinuate that either of those expensive garrisons was ever even in the smallest degree necessary for the purpose for which they were originally dismembered from the spanish monarchy that dismemberment perhaps never served any other real purpose than to alienate from england her natural ally the king of spain and to unite the two principal branches of the house of bourbon in a much stricter and more permanent alliance than the ties of blood could ever have united them End of book five chapter one part c